Hi, Natalie. Hi. Nice to meet you. Yeah, likewise. I'm glad we could finally make this happen. I know. (laughs) The stars were misaligned there for a moment. Yeah, it wasn't the right time. Wow, the lighting where you are is great. Is that just natural sun? Yeah, it is. Today's a sunny day. Wow. Yeah, you look beautiful. Thank you. Well, I'm really looking forward to hearing about your work, what you do with the brain, as well as how you incorporate Buddhism into your Mm -hmm. practice. Mm -hmm. How did you get into therapy and how did you get into Buddhism? What came first? You know, it's interesting. I think two things converged. Um, When I was a teenager, I was sort of interested in, in, you know, what, what are we made of? Why are we who we are? What's the point of being here? Um, you know, what's, what's the human path about? And when I was 14, um, there was a, a talk show host named Phil Donahue, um, and he had a, a TM, Transcendental Meditation, uh, I don't even know who it was that was on his show, and I was like, wow, that looks really interesting. So I asked my mother to drive me. There was a local TM center. This was in Victoria, British Columbia. And I asked her to take me there. And I I went and explored their introduction to meditation. And I was like, no, this doesn't seem quite right for me. And simultaneously, you know, I grew up in a family where there was a lot of feelings, but they were never talked about. And there wasn't a lot of intimacy. And for whatever reason, I could see that that wasn't necessary. And it was really kind of making everybody unhappy in my family. So I committed, I think I committed to both paths simultaneously as a teenager that, you know, I could bring people benefit by helping them have better family life, better communication, knowing how to work with their emotions to create health and you know love and at the same time kind of looking at and and what is the the bigger picture what exactly is the nature of being human are we fundamentally good what is what are emotions about who am i what is the self um kind of both of those things came together and then when i was about uh 19 Uh, I discovered uh, a Buddhist community and did a a weekend meditation program and really felt like it was a a good fit. And then went to, uh, I finished my undergraduate degree in psychology and then circumstances arose that uh, allowed me to go to Um, the only accredited Buddhist university in the U.S. called Naropa University to do a master's in counseling, but that brought in the Buddhist view, uh, the transpersonal view. So I was very fortunate in that, you know, I managed to marry those two topics at a very young age. And, you know, it's all just kind of unfolded from there. Beep, beep. Hi friends, have you heard of Brave? Brave is a fast privacy preserving browser that feels like Google Chrome, but without the ads and the various kinds of tracking that ads come with. I was using Chrome before for its minimal and uncluttered interface, but 
Brave has made it so easy to import bookmarks and extensions over that with its extra privacy feature, I'm a newfound fan. The Brave browser is free and available on all platforms and is actively used by more than 20 million people around the world. Speedwise, it feels more responsive and also feels private and secure. Try it out at brave.com. If you enjoy these episodes and you find that it adds value to your life, please consider supporting the podcast through Patreon, www.patreon.com slash higher states. Connect with me on Instagram at higher states with two S's at the end. Why two S's at the end, you ask? Well, someone out there is keeping the one with one S hostage and has not responded to my DMs. So if you're out there, please let me have it. Last time I checked, it didn't even seem like you use it. Okay, okay, I digress. Now, back to our show. For anyone who's listening who's not familiar with Buddhism, what are the principles and values that are incorporated into the analysis or the psychotherapy that you do? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, Buddhism is more of a a human lab than it is a traditional religion. So by that, it's, it's really, so if we take the path of the historical Buddha, you know, who lived 2,600 years ago, um, it was really exploring the question of, you know, what is the fundamental nature of humanity? And, and through self-inquiry um, and, and through using one's own mind and body, as the kind of lab to experiment what can we uncover about the true nature of humanity the true nature of existence um, and that's you know that was what led the buddha to practice meditation to practice austerities such as like burying himself in a hole which is kind of what the the um the spiritual aesthetics at the time were doing to really try to push themselves through an experience that would help them understand the nature of humanity and and existence and you know it was finally when the buddha kind of gave up being aggressive you could say um you know by kind of trying to force something and you know that he sat under the the Bodhi tree and attained what we call enlightenment or realization or awakening. And so what was that? Well, that was him letting go of, you know, conceptual mind. So from, from a Buddhist point of view, suffering is created because we have, um, we we basically live in concepts and those concepts can become and do become very elaborate and that they're not necessarily how things actually are. And as a psychotherapist, one of the things I try to help people see is that, you know, their idea of who they are and how things should go in their life versus how things actually are, the extent to which those things are further apart is the extent to which we suffer. But we don't actually have any fundamental confidence. Like we don't know, well, why am I here? What, what, what am I? Um, am I valuable? And that was what the Buddha was examining as he sat in meditation. 
And so the, the idea of awakening is really the idea that we can let go of our conceptual sense of who we are and we can have a direct experience of reality. And through that direct experience, we can uncover our fundamental nature. And, and the most important point is this thing called Buddha nature. So, so you could say that the belief of Buddhism at its core, although the only way it's appreciated or considered valuable is through your own experience of it. So it's not a belief in terms of it just staying as a conceptual thing. It's really the concept becomes a reference point for you to then find it in your own experience. And that's the key thing. So what is Buddha nature? Buddha nature is ultimately the understanding through experience that your nature is wholesome. Or as uh, Trump Rinpoche said, that there is fundamental sanity. So the nature of each individual, regardless of whatever concepts you have, whatever behaviors you have, whatever lifestyle, your fundamental nature is good. And a way that we can access our confidence in that um, is by looking at children. So whenever people have a doubt about their own Buddha nature, their own fundamental goodness or sanity, you know, to then ask them the question if they have children or even when they just witness, you know, a child, kind of what's your kind of first thought experience of that child, right? Usually what people connect with in that moment is some appreciation, some sense of that there is something fundamentally wholesome, you know, about that, you know, child or infant that isn't conceptual, it's preconceptual knowingness. So that's a way we can kind of start to appreciate that there might be this, this Buddha nature or this fundamental goodness, sanity that's inherent in, you know, and in Buddhism, it's not just in humans, it's in all sentient beings. So all beings who have consciousness, that that resides in them, even though they may not access it or know it. And the analogy that's often used is like the sun with clouds, right? So, you know, you can be at an airport and it's like a cloudy, rainy day and kind of, ugh, right? And you get on the plane and the plane ascends, right? And it goes through the clouds and then all of a sudden, right? It's a totally different environment. The sun is shining, the sky is bright blue, and, and that analogy of the sun and the clouds is um, used to talk about our fundamental nature and then our experience of ourselves. So clouds are basically our concepts, our, our dualistic creation of, of our experience. And, and so in Buddhism, the path to recognizing Buddha nature is the path of meditation. So it's very interesting 
when you stop and think about well, what exactly is meditation practice in its most fundamental form, it's sitting and being, right? It's a being activity, activity, not a doing activity. So it's interesting just to contemplate that, that here and now there's all sorts of studies that have been done, Richie Davidson, University of Wisconsin's done all these MRIs of these Buddhist monks and long-term meditators looking at, well, how are their brains different than the brains of other people? And you see that they are different. The higher gamma waves, um, higher frequencies are much stronger. The compassion center, the prefrontal cortex is more active. This is our higher functioning thinking, planning selves, right? The primitive brain, the limbic brain is, is more subdued. So you actually can even see the evidence of this now because of our you know, um, brain imaging technology. But it's interesting just to contemplate that this practice of meditation is a practice of non-tinkering with ourselves, right? We're really meditation is about giving up our agenda. And that is the practice that allows us to access, you know, our, our fundamental sanity. So um, going back to your question of like, well, what is the, sort of the core of Buddhism? The core of Buddhism is that we're fundamentally sane, but we're not accessing that sanity. Why are we not accessing that sanity? Because we have, we live in thought, right? And even emotion we can say, uh, is is really more thought than than emotion because you know you feel emotion for like a tenth of a second there's an experience but then really what it is is, is all our, our thoughts about it right we have a moment like glimpse of like you know care and then it's just a long diatribe of thoughts about that experience so even our emotions, we can say, is really just a manifestation of our um, thinking dualistic self. So those clouds are what obscure our Buddha nature. So our job or the path is, is to help ourselves, you know, be able to see the clouds, allow the, the clouds to be what they are, which is clouds are not fundamentally uh, a substance. They're not a thing right? They're actually transient. They're constantly changing. And so what we solidify as me, right, is really not solid, right? That, that you know, the me of right now is very different than the me of when I was five, right? Or yesterday. But we don't appreciate the fact that this thing we call ourselves is actually not a solid thing. It's also not a true thing, right? I mean, how can we say a thought is a true thing, right? Located for us. And that's always, you know, the question for, uh, you know, people who study the brain is like, well, where is the self, right? If we're saying that there is a self, where is it, right? It's is it when our brains are firing, right? And we're having thoughts that there is a self. Um, anyway, I can kind of 
get onto the, the sort of dissection, which is a practice in Buddhism where you really dissect what you call yourself, which is not to be nihilistic. Again, going back to that there is a fundamental good nature to every human, but that nature is not accessed and, and we are confused about our fundamental nature. And that's why we create so much chaos for ourselves is because we don't access that Buddha nature. And for most people, they don't even know it's there. There's just a lot of doubt. And we're more um, subject to the clouds, right? And, and our sense of whether we're a good person or we have value has more to do with what clouds are going by, right? So if we're having a storm of like pain and, you know, not feeling good about ourselves, feeling lost, not feeling worthy, right? We, we latch on to that and we go, oh, that's me, right? But if we're having like clouds that are bright and, and cute and, you know, we're feeling up, you know, we're like, oh, me, maybe me is okay. Maybe I'm an okay person. Right? But we don't really know. And we're just constantly latching on to these thoughts. And that is from a Buddhist point of view, you know, why we suffer. We suffer because we don't know what to look to, to tell us who we are. Um, and we, you know, don't have a path, right? We're all just sort of like, well, maybe if I change my diet, right? That will be, you know, a good thing. Or maybe if I start volunteering or, you know, maybe if I make more money or, you know, but basically we don't know. And that uncertainty, you know, is a source of a lot of our pain. I'm just like going all over the place here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. What I really appreciate about Eastern way of thought and as well as indigenous or native of any kind is that it always brings back the pathway to the true self through their practices. And I feel in Western society, that's something that we're missing. Mm -hmm. So I love this approach of bringing that holistic point of view mm -hmm. for us Westerners to navigate our lives. And the more we do this, like you said, the less suffering, the more understanding, the more compassion and acceptance of self. Because here in the West, there is nothing that does that. The core really is capitalism. And capitalism really is to make you not like yourself. So you buy certain things. So your sense of esteem becomes greater because you have this thing, this attainment which is the opposite of what all native traditions say. You have everything you need, basically, is the core principle and root. So I, I love this, and I love meeting practitioners who are bringing this more universal way of getting to peace within yourself. Yes. Can we talk a little bit about the story? Mm-hmm. In my observation, there is a there is an aversion to change or to grow a lot of the times because of this story that we cling on to. Why and how do we get our loved ones to go beyond that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a very important point you bring up, which is attachment, right? So this is kind of one of the the 
the, the challenges of you know, being human is that we get very attached to things and we don't want to give them up, even when they cause us pain, right? So even when we can see that, oh, the story I'm telling myself is a painful story, right? But we still go, but it's mine. I'm going to keep repeating it. And it's interesting to look at the brain and to see that the brain has the same habit, which is attachment to continuing to do something and not pausing to take in current data. So post-traumatic stress disorder is the manifestation of this pattern for the brain. So just to like explain that briefly. So when we have a traumatic experience and what is a traumatic experience? That is when the, the individual's brain ex interprets the current moment experience as being eminent danger. So eminent danger for the brain is something's gonna cause me bodily harm in less than a minute. So that limbic brain takes over and goes, I'm going to punch it, I'm going to run from it, or I'm going to play dead in order to survive. But then I'm going to go back to my kind of full self, assuming things are safe, you know, and animals have this, humans have this. But what happens when we have traumatic experiences, um, and you know, Tra traumatic experiences can be like being bullied as a child, um, you know, being left to fend for ourselves when we're too young to be able to feed ourselves, you know, uh, latchkey kids um, was an example of like traumatizing a generation, whoops, because they're too young and that's a traumatic experience to leave them at home unattended. So there's lots of things that the system will perceive as a traumatic event. It doesn't just have to be like, people always talk about like, uh, you know, severe abuse or, you know, being in a war, but, you know, there are little T's and if the system is assuming they're not safe, it's going to develop this habit, right? So then what the brain does is it goes, oh, this is the way things are. And it just continues that assumption that I need to take care of myself in the environment through punching, running, or playing dead. So punching and running is anxiety. That's what we call anxiety. Playing dead is, is a depressive response. So what happens, right? So if we have a traumatic experience with a loved one, they neglect us, right? The system goes, oh, I'm not safe with a love object, somebody who loves me. So then what happens is that system goes into the habit and, and is attached to that pattern of assuming not safe with a loved one. So then we're an adult, right? Or we're a teenager and we're in our first love relationship, right? And then what does the system do? It assumes not safe. Right? So we yell at that person, we flee that person, we collapse, we let that person take over our lives. Right? And that's the brain just assuming, oh, now's like then. Love object not safe. I'm going to strategize with my, my limbic 
primitive reptilian brain and I'm going to punch it, run from it or play dead as the strategy to be in this situation. The brain doesn't go, oh, pause, wait a minute, but is really now like then? Really? Is this, you know, person who loves me really like the parent who neglected me? Right? The brain doesn't do that analysis. It just goes automatic, that automatic attachment. And so it's interesting that, you know, Buddhism, which started, you know, way before we had this sophisticated understanding of the brain and brain imaging and that we could, you know, validate all these things, um, had that understanding that, that humanity, part of our suffering is this attachment to repeating the same thing over and over again and not really looking at the present moment evidence of like, is this true? Is this real, right? Is this really meaningful? And so that is the challenge, both in psychotherapy and from a Buddhist point of view, walking the Buddhist path is to recognize we get attached and that attachment is our suffering. That moment of grasping is the moment we're recreating suffering. We're recreating confusion. We're not seeing things for as they actually are in that moment. And in the same way, when we're telling ourselves that same story, oh, I can't trust my partner. They're going to betray me. I know it. They're out to get me. Right? And the friend's going, really? I, I, I kind of think that, that Joe's nice. Like, where are you getting that from? Right? So often it's the you know, the person in this case who isn't in that dream state, isn't in that habit of a narrative, right? Who's going, hmm? I, don't, I don't see it. What, what's going on here? And one of the things we can do to help ourselves is to be able to, you know, have that part of ourselves that can be the observer in the same way our friend can be the observer and go, is that, what, what are you, what are you seeing there? Because is that really true? I don't, I don't, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if you just should assume that's true. And the thing people do is, but I feel it. So therefore it must be true. So one of our errors we make is that we make our feelings facts, right? Which is, you know, um, a wonderful thing like in 12 step they have amazing slogans around this habit which is if i'm having the feeling it must be true it must be happening in the here and now right so we're feeling that mistrust that i'm not safe feeling that's really actually a super 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 old feeling from when we were neglected as a kid right and because we're having the feeling, we go, we project it out. And it, this is also true in Buddhism. Buddhism describes this pattern in the same way, way we understand this actually in Western psychotherapy, which is that we project onto our environments, right? And then we, and we have, you know, a relationship with our projection, not with the person as they really are, right? but uh, with our projection 
of what we think they are. And we're very attached to that projection. And that is another way that we're creating that suffering. And then to go back to your question of, well, why can't we let go of that? It's scary. It brings up fear, right? And again, we take our emotions to be true and real and meaningful if they're arising, right? So when we think of letting go of our narrative, often if we check in with our experience, we notice, oh, now I feel uncomfortable. Uncomfortable feelings are bad. So there must be something bad going on. And then we'll, you know, try to grasp hold again of something familiar because that makes us feel calmer. And we think, oh, then that must be true. So being able to have that observer self, very helpful, who also has an understanding of emotions as not gods. Our emotions are not gods. They're not the oracles telling us what's true. They're often old, an old narrative that's like maybe it was true like 20 years ago. Maybe it was true five years ago for an instant, right? But that gets solidified and reinforced and we have a strong attachment to it. So what's very helpful about Buddhism in working with, you know, uh, letting go of our narrative that maybe doesn't serve us is that we do have a reference point and we mind needs a reference point because we live in a dualistic way. We're constantly creating uh, an other, right? And, and relating with other, that's how mind creates confusion. So we need a reference point all the time. And so the thing I love about Buddhism and use it a lot in my therapy, though I don't necessarily call it Buddha nature, you know, use language that the person can identify with, is creating a reference point that there is something good. There, it's like, if you let go of your bad story about yourself, you're not just gonna free fall, right? Which is kind of what fear imagines. We're gonna give you another reference point which is a more wholesome, more helpful reference point so that we can start to let go and know that it's okay to let go of that narrative. But when people really think that, that or have the feeling that if they let go of their narrative, they're nothing, they're gonna to cling to that narrative, even if it's inaccurate, causes them harm and pain, they're going to cling to it because they're afraid. And so, you know, part of what we're trying to do skillfully is we're trying to like let people know it's okay to let go a little bit. Like that's what meditation practice is. It's like it's like allowing ourselves to open our fists a little bit and see that oh, it's okay to do that. Nothing bad is going to happen if we let go. Oh, that's beautiful. Projection. Can we touch on that? Mm -hmm. On how childhood projections block the way of being fully present in the moment. Mm -hmm. And perhaps a common example of what an adult might do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, whenever we're judging, 
we're projecting, right? And I mean, so if we just really think about how many, how many times a day through our sense perceptions, right? Data comes in through our sense perceptions and then our mind projects all sorts of words onto that, right? Like somebody may come into your presence, right? And you experience them for just like, a, like an instant, you take in that sensory perception and then all of a sudden mind has this whole narrative that it creates, right? And unfortunately, right, we have this in technicolor in our country right now where people have very strong projections onto each other. And then that creates very strong feelings and very harmful behavior, right? When we decide that somebody is for us or against us, right? You're either for me or you're against me, right? So right now we're in a very primitive time in our thinking about being in relationship in a larger national community, right? We've created these two camps, right? And so that's a very real example of projection and how it's really not helpful to have it have it boiled down to you're for me or you're against me right and so you know that then determines whether or not we're going to be open to that person or close to that person right we're going to like that person we're not going to like that person based on our own mind nothing about the actual knowing that person we only took in 10 seconds, if that, probably half a second of data when this person came into our presence and we decided, oh, you're in my camp or you're not in my camp, right? And then we have this whole elaborate way we're gonna relate with this person, really just solely based on our minds and what our minds project, right? Are you, are you my kind of person or are you not my kind of person? Right, we can't talk, we think we can't tolerate you know, other, whatever other is, different, unlike us, something we don't have an immediate story about. And that's, you know, that that is probably, uh, uh, I just had a session with somebody where we were talking about this uh, in friendship. Um, my client got a, a, the, the vaccination and her friend immediately had a judgment about that. That was bad. Right? <gasps> right? Our judgments are, are also a form of aggression. Right? I know what is right and what is wrong. And if you're doing something that's wrong, I'm going to have, you know, a negative feeling towards you. Right, and all of that happens because of our own minds, not the other person. We're not actually taking in that other person and finding out who they are. So the thing that I always coach my clients on who are in relationship, which is pretty much everybody, right, is in significant relationships, is when we have an idea about the other person that is meaningful, that we give a lot of meaning to, that we have strong feelings about, we owe it to that person to check it out. 
and find out if it's actually true, right? Joe, I had this like fantasy about you, right? That you're reckless in your behavior because you know, you got vaccinated and you took the vaccine away from somebody else. And I'm noticing I'm feeling mad at you for that. But, but what, actually, what actually happened? What, 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 why did you get the vaccine? Why were you motivated to do that? Did it take a vaccination from somebody else to give it to you? Was, did that actually, is that actually what happened? Right? We don't pause to go, you know, my thoughts and feelings about that person may actually not be accurate. And we do this in our intimate relationships all the time, right? Oh, my husband didn't bring in the groceries that were sitting on the front stoop. That means he just cares about himself. He doesn't care about me. Really? Is that what motivated him? Is that how he feels? We know that for sure. But it takes vulnerability, right, to be able to go, I, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I don't know. Maybe what I think isn't accurate. So again, then that creates that sense of vulnerability. And because we've grown up to, you know, a large extent, most people in the US have grown up with a Judeo-Christian view of self, which means you should feel kind of badly about yourself because you kind of sinned, right? So there's sort of like this, you should actually kind of feel badly, you know, whenever you're just being, there should be this like little kind of sinful self feeling. We've all kind of grown up with that. Even if we grew up in an atheist household or we rejected religion, most people, when they're honest and kind of really get into their feelings, notice, yeah, I do kind of feel like I'm just waiting to be confirmed as bad. I did something wrong, therefore I am bad. That's usually the belief feeling setup that's under the surface for most people. So again, what I find so helpful about Buddhism, again, is that reference point of basic sanity. Because then that means we can allow ourselves to feel the vulnerability of not knowing, or perhaps we were wrong, but to know that doesn't mean now we're going into that basic badness, right? We can have a different reference point, which is, ah, but there's still this, you know, fundamental sanity that's there. So I can tolerate the feelings and the uncertainty of saying to my partner, gosh, I, I had this thought about you, but I don't know if it's true. Can I find out, you know, what, why didn't you pick up the groceries when you were coming into the house? I imagine, you know, some kind of bad motivation. And, you know, and then we have to be open to taking them in, right? Which is creating vulnerability. There has to be, we have to trust, right? Which is not being in control. My partner says, oh my gosh, I had to go pee. And then the phone rang, right? I'm so sorry, right? Of course, right? And then it's like, our projection blows up in that moment, right? 
And then usually what happens is we get confirmation that we are loved, right? And that's the, the other thing is that usually when we take the time to be vulnerable and open and really try to take in the present moment, right? Who is this person in the present moment? Most of the time, we don't get something harmful. We don't get something unhealthy, destructive. We actually get something nutrients, something good. And, and that's the other thing is that we, we have to kind of allow ourselves to create the circumstances and the vulnerability to not have our fears confirmed. Fear doesn't want to go towards truth because that's data. And fear loves no data because then I can just project, you know, horror stories, right? But if you have data, then fear doesn't get to kind of rule. And now is also a time when there's lots of fear. And so people, you know, want to cling to their stories more than take, take in real data. Mm -hmm. I think important also on top of that is not only question other and situation, but also self. Why do I feel this way? Did something happen to me when I was five that is now triggering me to behave and act out of the limbic brain because I haven't dealt with it? I see it all the time. And I just say to myself, wow, if that person was just a little bit more loved or got a hug, yeah. <laughs> I bet if I hugged them, they would relax right now. <laughs> yes, well said, yes. Most people don't act badly because they were loved, right? And, you know, now there's, there is evidence too that actually people who act violently often have brain damage. And if that's true, you know, then punishing somebody is really not an effective intervention. It's helping somebody heal what's damaged. We're also attached to our aggression. Mm -hmm. Right? So there's three core, there's three basic emotions in Buddhism, passion, aggression, and ignorance, and all of the other kind of emotions come out of those three. And from a Buddhist point of view, uh, in, in some ways, they're all equal. Because they're both, they're all, they're all, they all stem from ignorance. So passionate grasping, not so helpful punching, right? Not so helpful. Ignoring and playing dumb to the world, to reality, not so helpful. So one of the things that I love about Buddhism is that, you know, the, the, the confused emotions, uh, which are called the, the kleshas, um, are really the manifestation of confusion. So again, it allows us to be able to kind of look at emotion more neutrally, more from a place of equanimity, as opposed to judging emotions. That one's good, that one's bad, right? To recognize that, you know, if there's attachment, they're all problematic, 
right? To the extent to which they keep us in our projection and acting out our projection, they're all problematic, right? So chasing love, you know, and passion and desire from a Buddhist point of view, not so helpful, right? Because what, what are we doing? We're just chasing something that we think will, will make us feel better. And pushing away aggression is just warding off something we think is going to harm us, right? And ignoring, right? None of those is terribly helpful. We want to actually, and this is something that Trump Rinpoche said when he trained psychotherapists at Naropa University in the 70s, is he said, really what you want to help people to do is to be able to meet their emotions, not act them out, not suppress them, but actually meet their emotions so they can try to glimpse the nature of emotions and to, you know, understand them experientially as they are. So then we discover that their energy, they're, they have no inherent value. They're neither good nor bad because that's conceptual, right? That's the projected thought we put on the energy of emotions, right? That, that they're transient, they're not solid, right? They don't have a location. Why are you so afraid of emotions? Where are they anyway, right? The thing you should be afraid of is impulsive behavior on emotions, not the actual emotion itself, right? But again, because we don't know what our fundamental nature is, if we feel shame, right, what we call shame, right? We go, oh, it's confirmation, I'm fundamentally bad. Right? So now we're so afraid and we're going to do everything to ward off that feeling because we don't want that confirmation of being fundamentally bad. Right? So this is in Buddhism, right? We're, we're dissecting all of this, right? Well, wait a minute, hold off a second. But what actually is happening in the present moment? Well, I have this sensation in my body. Oh, oh yeah, there's sort of like a tingliness or, you know, kind of heavy. Okay. And then my mind calls that shame. And then I have this whole story about what shame means. Oh, shame means I'm a bad person. I'm not worthwhile. Right? But going back to your thing about the narrative, right? And then we believe that's true. Oh, why? Right? We don't question that. And a big part of the Buddhist path and big part of good psychotherapy is looking at things and questioning them, right? And examining it. Well, like you said, like, why do I feel this way? Where did this come from? What does it really mean? And through that examination, right? We don't uncover something fundamentally bad. Nobody ever does. When they really do the work in psychotherapy, to look inward and examine themselves, they never find a core of basic badness. They're scared sometimes that they will, but in my 20 years of working with people, I've never found anybody to be that way. And it's very interesting, you know, again, going back to people who commit, you know, violent crimes, 
if you look at their brains, those are often damaged brains. And so again, really, is that a pure evil person? No, no, that's actually someone who's, who is ill, who is sick. Are you familiar with Daniel Arsham's work? No, who's that? He does brain scans, and that is his entry point into psychotherapy. Oh, Daniel Amen. Oh, Amen. Excuse me. Yes. Yeah. Yes. In fact, it's funny you should bring him up. I just finished his uh, um, continuing education uh, training, 50 hours of, of brain health, and we went through all the brain scans, and it was a lot of fun. Wow. Yeah, I bet. But that's, you know, that's an, a really kind of helpful, um, people need evidence of not being fundamentally broken. And it's very interesting because when I studied the brain 25 years ago, we were taught, because this was the understanding back then, that, that the brain is a fixed system. And if you have damage in an area of the brain, that, that that's permanent. And that's 100% incorrect, right? So it was like in 25 years, we've basically gone from the world is flat to the world is round. The brain is like a fixed system. No, the brain is actually a dynamic system that can heal itself with good information, right? Neuroplasticity is real. We can grow new you know, new communication pathways in the brain, even, you know, even aging brains can do that. And so it's a part of what I love about his work is really helping people see that they're, you know, it's not hopeless, which is something that we like to kind of fall into as a belief that, you know, change isn't possible. We can't, you know, progress on our path of healing, but we can. And when you show people a damaged brain, right, as the, the me that, excuse my language, fucked up, right, then they're able to then separate and go, oh, maybe I'm not fundamentally damaged, right? Mm. That's not who I am fundamentally. And tell me a bit about the machine that you used. Uh, what is it called? Neuro? Oh yeah, neurofeedback. So uh, it was actually a meditation student of mine 10 years ago who introduced me to the concept. He had been approached, he was in private equity in New York and he'd been approached to fund a peak performance neurofeedback clinic in Manhattan. And he wanted my opinion about this technology called neurofeedback and I had never heard of it. And he said, well, it's like teaching the brain to rewire itself and i was like oh my god i gotta find out about this because you know that primitive limbic brain doesn't take orders from the prefrontal cortex doesn't listen to what the therapist is saying right it's working automatically on its own habitual assumptions and so in psychotherapy, right, one of the things we're trying to do is we're trying to like, how do we get that brain to come into the present moment so that it can see there is no danger now. It doesn't need to scream in order to communicate, right? Or collapse 
when they don't get along with someone at work, right? Like that's not appropriate for the here and now, but that's a part of the brain that, that doesn't take orders from other people, from the prefrontal cortex, from our, our self-talk, right? So that's always the challenge. So I looked into this technology, which basically uses EEG sensors. So, so the brain communicates through electricity and through chemicals, and it's taking the electrical communication. And when the brain is going into state change and performing functions, it does a kind of electrical dance. And this particular technology recognizes that state change and cues that, that automatic functioning brain to come into the present moment. So it's like the meditation gong for that automatic functioning brain. So right when it's about to perform a function, it's cued, pay attention. And what the brain will do then is it'll pay attention to what the environment needs and is happening both internally, externally, and also what it's doing habitually. And it'll compare and contrast. Like if I'm going this way, but my environmental needs are this way. Why am I going this way? I got to go this way. So the brain's designed to use its energy efficiently and make effective decisions, but it has a bad habit of just assuming now is like then. So we're getting it out of that habit and saying, no, 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 no. Now is actually different. Pay attention. And so then the brain gets to compare and contrast and change its functioning based on being cued to come into the present moment. So that stress response that we're all habituated to, to some extent, right? That is what the brain is supposed to do when there's that imminent danger, post-traumatic stress symptoms, anxiety, depression, all those things, the brain doing the wrong thing habitually. So neurofeedback, is a way we're getting that automatic functioning brain that's in charge of that stress response to actually pay attention to the here and now and see the here and now is safe. There isn't life-threatening danger. So then the brain calms down and cheers up. It comes out of that hyper arousal, that fight flight, and comes up out of that hypo arousal depressive response and into the state of regulation, which is when the brain is perceiving safety, it's calm, it can focus when it needs to, it can be spontaneous, it can experience creativity, delight, playfulness, joy, compassion. That's actually the brain's natural state when it's perceiving reality accurately, which is very interesting from a Buddhist point of view, right? That the brain in its organic state of rest is primed to sort of see reality for what it is from a Buddhist point of view. But neurofeedback is what cues the brain that you're not in the present moment. Really. And so when the brain does that over and over and over again, so a series of neurofeedback sessions, it's learning this over and over again, come into the present, come into the present, good data is in the present. Then the brain starts to do that even when you're not hooked up to the neurofeedback machine. And when it does that sort of continuously, that's when we see people really, you know, shifting in their nervous system and being able to be calm and grounded and open and responsive rather than reactive. 
So then that's the foundation that people then can like really get traction in their lives because their brains are in alignment with the here and now. So it's very cool technology um, and really it only came about because computers speed got to the speed of the human brain. Wow. So how does it work physically? Do you sit there and how does it hook up to the head? Yeah, you, I mean, you just basically sit there. You have EEG sensors attached to your head with conductive paste, which just allows the electrical, you know, voltage to come off your head and be collected, you know, in the wires. And then it's fed into a little amplifier, which changes the raw voltage into numbers. And then that gets fed into software in a dedicated um, computer. And then it take the, the software takes, it's 256 data points per second. That's how quickly your brain is making decisions, right? Milliseconds. And whenever it senses state change is about to happen, that turbulence, it stops music you're listening to. And that interruption of the music is what cues your brain, pay attention. Because the brain uses auditory sense perception as its way to always be finding out what's happening. And so that happens like millisecond by millisecond. And, and so basically you're sitting with sensors on your head and you're listening to music. I mean, that's ostensibly what you experience with your conscious self. And, you know, some people notice like really feeling more relaxed. Other people notice nothing. Um, you could read, you could meditate, you could, people who are sleep deprived, right? And because they're in a state of hypervigilance uh, chronically don't sleep well. And those brains, as soon as they really register safety in the present, they go to sleep. So some people automatically go to sleep. And that's fine because the brain's still listening. Um, even when we're asleep, it's always listening for danger. And so that becomes a very um, nice fit for psychotherapy because it's supporting that automatic functioning brain, you know, rewiring itself and, and getting more in alignment with the here and now. And then, you know, the conscious work we do in therapy of like being able to, you know, have that observer self, you know, that inquires, you know, that does the kind of work to understand why do I have these strong emotions? How should I be in a relationship? You know, all those things we can then do much more easily because that brain isn't in a reactive state so much. So people who are in like addiction recovery and a lot of people in addiction recovery have trauma, you know, like anxiety and depression. And so when people are able to calm down and be more grounded, then they can actually do the work to see how they've been in denial, to work a 12-step program if they want to go that route, to change their behaviors, to stay away from the triggers that make them use, to not be triggered by people in the rooms when they're doing their 12-step program, you know, things like that. But there's lots of applications for neurofeedback but it's, it's just makes my job as a therapist a lot easier because I'm not trying to get that brain to calm down enough to be able to do the psychotherapy work. Wow. And I'm sure it gives whoever is, whoever has the device on 
validation of their different states of brainwave activity. So yeah. they're confirmed, oh, this is what's happening. Why? Yeah. Yes. Because like you said, people need proof. They need evidence. They yeah. need to see something. Wow, that is incredible. Yeah, it's, and, and I think it's really going to be integrated like in the next 10, 20 years, you know, neurofeedback type technology will be much more integrated into mental health because we understand now that you have to retrain the brain and, you know, that, that that's part of mental health. And you also have to retrain the brain by eating better food and by exercising and by, you know, doing this self-inquiry there's all these supports that mental health isn't just this sort of abstract psychological thing, that it's also a physical thing and how we care for our bodies and our brains is it's an integral part of whether we're anxious or depressed or suicidal or. Mm. Do you feel with your clients when they first come to see you upon the first session that there is any resistance or usually are they completely open and willing and ready to change? No, of course not. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we're always ambivalent. <laughs> As we were talking about, we're attached. We're attached and we think that attachment is somehow productive for us. And so, you know, a very fundamental you know, aspect of psychotherapy is understanding that resistance is not a bad thing. You know, people's timing is a real thing. And when people aren't ready for change, right, it, it, to really respect that and to understand, well, what are the precursors, right? What do people need in order to know that, that, the next step is an okay step for them to take. And, and that's something I think that in general, if we could have more respect for the timing of change in people, we would be much kinder to each other, right? Because it's like, well, you're doing something destructive, stop it. And there's actually a really great um, Bob um, Newhart, the comedian, he did, it's on YouTube, you can watch it, and it's, it's brilliant. He is a, a, a psychologist, and a woman comes in with a phobia, and she's describing the phobia, and his intervention is, stop it, <laughs> which we all know doesn't work, right? But it should work, because that is logically the right answer. We should stop doing the thing that is causing us pain but we don't we're ambivalent about that um and so you know really respecting that what we think is somebody's next step might actually be their 10th step forward that their next step is you know a month or a year of contemplating would it be okay if i wasn't so miserable like if that's possible, would that be okay? Because our sense of self, we're going full circle here. Our sense of self will change. And is it okay if I have a more fluid sense of myself rather than 
this fixed known thing, right? We prefer what we know, even if it's uncomfortable, than what we don't know. And so for somebody, a year of contemplating on and off, like, gosh, if I gave up that relationship, I might be happier. Would that be okay? Do I deserve that? That might take one person a week and another person a year. And, you know, from a Buddhist point of view, change is talked about in lifetimes, which is, you know, a really good thing for us to contemplate because a lot of our doubt arises because we think change isn't happening fast enough. What's wrong with me that this is still my problem, that I'm still talking about this, right? We use that as confirmation that there's something really wrong with me. But if you take the, the, the Buddhist view, right, as a contemplation, right, which is that, oh, we've been doing this many, many, many lifetimes. Change happens over many, 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 many lifetimes. And that's fine, no problem. It doesn't have to be faster. And that for most people is like, what? Because, you know, as you pointed out in a capitalist society, we want people to think that change has to be happening all the time because then they're gonna consume more, right? They're gonna be more fearful, they're gonna consume more. But if we think about change as inevitable, so this maybe is another really important thing to say about Buddhism is that people's realization of their basic sanity is inevitable. Nobody doesn't reach that conclusion eventually. So if we just try that on, right, of like everybody inevitably, even if they do nothing in this lifetime, quote unquote, they're still on a path to inevitably realizing and and living in fundamental sanity, which is fundamentally clear seeing, omnipotent, all knowing, all compassionate. Everybody is inevitably moving towards that. If we just try that on as a belief just for a second, right? Ah, we just relax for a second. So, you know, in, in Buddhism, it's it's sort of it's not about being dogmatic. It's about kind of what is, it's more about skillful means. What does each individual need in order to take their next step on their path to, you know, you could say relaxing into their fundamental sanity. But everybody's different. Everybody needs something different. It's not, it's not a like one size fits all tradition. And it's also not about, you know, this is the way things are. It's like, this might be a helpful way to think about things to help shift your mind out of its fixations, whatever, what, however it's fixated and grasping, you know, that may not be helpful, right? So we, we just try things on. And, and as I said in the beginning, it's really more like being in a lab. Right. We're going to do a little experiment here and see what see what we notice um, and learn from that. And that's part of, you know, when the Dalai Lama started the Mind Life series, like, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, where he would bring all these scientists to Dharamsala and, and they would talk about, you know, the science of mind, the science of emotions, because 
really wanting to communicate to the, the greater public, like Buddhism is really about inquiry, you know, and disciplined inquiry into how things are and that, and what can we learn about our, what's really true based on that disciplined inquiry. So I don't know how I got there, but, but people know they have resistance and that resistance is healthy. Mm, I love the idea of everyone is on their way to find their true self because it gives more space mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the mind. Yes, yes. And speed is not our friend. Speed just obscures. So anything that can be a speed bump, so long as it's not like a detour into spacing out, right? But just like if you just think about the analogy of being on a train, right? If the train is moving slower, much easier to kind of see what you're, what, what's there as you pass by. Whereas if you're on one of those, you know, bullet trains, right? Everything's just a blur. And so, you know, that's another just like skillful means. It's like, what are the things that create the speed bumps so that we can bring ourselves more into the present, be open to taking things in more accurately and relaxation, genuine relaxation. You know, what we call relaxation in this culture is more like spacing out or <laughs> creating a particular state right? A bliss state or something. But that's not relaxation from a Buddhist point of view. Relaxation from a Buddhist point of view is just trusting, allowing oneself to just rest and not tinker in the present moment. Nothing I have to tinker with. Just be wakeful. It's incredible that you found this at such a young age. It is an interesting, I, I have contemplated that it, it is a little odd and I'm, I'm very thankful that, you know, for whatever reason, you know, I had the thought of meditation at such a young age. And, and I think that's part of why, you know, I talk to other people and share this is because I do have a slightly um, unique, you know, orientation and have done many meditation retreats and spent the time doing these things. Um, and so can share it with other people, you know, who are busy and living their lives and, and don't necessarily have the time to, to do these things, to be able to share with them here some things that might be helpful based on my unusual orientation to meditation and the nature of mind and what I consider fun topics. <laughs> yes. I mean, you were really dropped a gem as a youth. It's incredible. It's a gift. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. But you know, it's interesting. It also came out of seeing suffering. So I saw my father really suffer with not being able to relate with his pain from his own childhood. Mm. And, you know, really seeing like that's, you know, is that really necessary that we have to hang on to that pain or, or is there something we can do so we can let that go and, and be more at peace to use that word. So, um, 
I think that's probably the other motivator for me is, you know, is the question of like, well, is this amount of suffering necessary? Is this level of confusion necessary? Is this like all there is? Is this the human condition? And, um, you know, having the open mind that maybe that's not all that is, right? And that's, I think, the other seed I try to plant in people is like, maybe we don't have it right and that that's okay. And that maybe we, we don't actually have to suffer and be as confused as we are. That maybe that's just a kind of like mistake that's happening, you know, and that we could just, that we could correct that in a, a non, you know, non-aggressive way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see your work as dropping these flowers of inquisition in people and sparking them along their path. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I try to do. Yeah. Thank you so much, Natalie. I appreciate your time and sitting down with me. Yeah, thank you for reaching out and being open and curious and you know, wanting to share what you're open and curious about with others because that's you're, you're sort of similar in that way, right? You, you want to share with other people what, what you think might be of benefit. Exactly. How do people find you? I have a couple of websites, BuddhistPsychotherapyNY.com. Um, and I have on that website um, lectures that I've given on, on Buddhism. So if people are sort of curious about you know, thinking about what is Buddhism and how does it fit with psychotherapy. Um, and then the neurofeedback website is neurofeedbacktraining.com. Those are the, the two best ways to find me. Okay, great. Yeah. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you again for inviting thank, me. Yes, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This was a beautiful talk. Oh, thank you. All okay, right. enjoy your day. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.